0: Hi, welcome to another session of Come, Follow Me's assistance provided by Cedar Fort, hosted by David Ridges. I'm Damon Barr. I work at BYU. I teach Doctrine and Covenants there, among other things, and I'm grateful for the chance to talk to you about Sections 81, 82, and 83 of the Doctrine and Covenants as you prepare for participating in Come, Follow Me in Sunday School and in your family and other situations. Let me give you a little uh, background to these sections. Um, My wife and I served a mission in Kirtland a few years ago and we found that there's nothing like providing context, historical, geographical, locational context, for studying the Doctrine and Covenants, especially if that context is the place where you happen to be standing. Unfortunately, you and I aren't in Kirtland at the moment, but we can create an auditory duplicate of that experience to some extent by providing historical and geographical information about what was going on at the time sections 81, 82, and 83 were were taking place. Uh, We're going to focus primarily, as we look at 81, 82, and 83, on the evolution of the quorum of the first presidency. So to give you some kind of chronology about where these revelations fit, uh, just remember that in November of 1831, the prophet Joseph Smith had gathered about 12 brethren, more or less, to the John and Alice Johnson home to discuss the publication of his revelations, which were eventually published in what was known as the Book of Commandments in Independence, Missouri. A month later in December, the Lord told Joseph and Sidney in section 71 to stop their Joseph Smith Bible translation work and do some preaching in the area of Hiram, along with other brethren, to undo the anti-Latter-day Saint efforts that were being made by former members uh, Ezra Booth, Simon's writer, and and other individuals. That lasted about a month. Uh, Then in uh, he recommenced um, the Bible translation in January. Um, also in January, he traveled to Amherst, about an hour or two by car these days, uh, west of Kirtland, um, where Section 75 was revealed, and we'll talk more about that in a minute. In February, in the middle of the month, Section 76 was revealed, the three degrees of glory, uh, and that brings us to about the 15th of March, when we have Section 81. And then Joseph and Sidney and New Whitney and others traveled to um, Missouri, the 1st of April. And it was in April that Section 82 and 83 were revealed. So let's take a close look now at how this wonderful organization or structure in the church, known as the First Presidency, came to be of the three general leadership quorums in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the First Presidency, the Quorum of the Twelve, and the Seventy. The first one to be restored was the First Presidency, and it was a line-upon-line restoration like every other element of the restoration. And it occurred over a two-year period period, and much of it happened in the John and Alice Johnson home where at the time Joseph and Emma were living in. In the Johnson home. This is a remarkable story, actually, and it attests to the divine origin or the organizational structure of the church and the revelatory calling of the prophet Joseph Smith. Now, there are three early revelations that mention the first presidency. Let's just take a look at those for a second. Uh, You can jump to section 20 and we'll go to verse 67. Here it says, every president of the high priesthood or presiding elder, bishop, high counselor, and high priestess to be ordained by direction of the high council. President of the high priesthood referring to um, the, first, the president in the first presidency. Then you can jump to section 48, verse 6. And here the Lord says. Uh, And they shall be appointed to purchase the lands, talking about lands in Missouri, to make a commencement to lay the foundation of the city, and so on and so forth. And this is to be appointed unto this individual by the presidency of the church and the bishop of the church. And then jumping to section 68, which is November 1st, 1831. Section 68 verse 19 talks about um, a bishop being called, set apart, and ordained at the end of the verse under the hands of the first presidency of the Melchizedek priesthood. So you get the sense that um, there were early intimations that there would be a first presidency. However, uh, when you look at the original recordings of these revelations, there was no wording related to the First Presidency. And those verses or passages that we just looked at were actually added under divine inspiration when the prophet prepared his revelations for publications in 1835 in the first edition of the Doctrine and Covenants. So the first divine directions actually pertaining to the First Presidency appear in section 107. So, before we get to section 81, we're going to look at a few other sections to kind of get some background for that, that section. So, we're going to go to section 107. 107 is interesting, uh, like some of these other sections in the sense of timing and chronology. Section 107 is actually a compilation of five different revelations that were received at various times. The, about the second half of it, approximately half of section 107, the second half was revealed in November of 1831. During the time when Joseph had those brethren together for talking about publishing the revelations, it was um, received in on November 11th, 1831. So, uh, as we talk about it, uh, we'll also talk about the meaning of some terms or some vocabulary that will help us get a clear understanding of the events corresponding to the restoration of the quorum of the First Presidency. And by the way, when I say restoration, there was a First Presidency 2,000 years ago in the dispensation of the Meridian of Times, namely Peter, James, and John. So indeed, there was a restoration of a quorum structure that existed in a previous dispensation. Now, these terms that we're going to emphasize as we look at section 107 also kind of help us understand that there was an evolution in people's understanding that leadership in the priesthood equated to leadership in the church. So, section 107, verse 64 says, Then comes the high priesthood, which is the greatest of all. Um, when the term high priesthood was first used uh, in 1831, in April, May, and June, when especially in June, when the first high priest in this dispensation were um, ordained, the term high priesthood referred to the office of high priest. And then only over time did the notion of the high priesthood refer to the term Melchizedek priesthood as it does in the first few verses of the current version of section 107. So when we jump to 65 and 66, we'll see these terms being used. It says, In 65 it must needs be that one be appointed of the high priesthood to preside over the priesthood, and he shall be called president behind the priesthood of the church, or in other words, the presiding high priest over the high priesthood over the church. Um. So when we jump to section 91, it's very clear what that terminology means. It means, and again, the duty of the president of the office of the high priesthood is to preside over the whole church and to be like unto Moses. So because the term high priesthood had a dual meaning back then, the notion of a president of the high priesthood could have meant, did and did mean president of the high priest quorum, as well as president of the high, a.k.a. Melchizedek priesthood, of the entire church. And if president of the Melchizedek priesthood of the entire church, then president of the church itself. Now, um, there in section one twenty-four, we can read that there was a revelation given. For the establishment of of Don Carlos Smith, as Joseph Smith's younger brother, as the president of a high priest quorum. Interestingly, back then, stake presidents were not presidents of high priest quorums. There was actually a position for a president of the high priest quorum. Uh, State presidents didn't start serving as presidents of stake high priest quorums until uh, the 1960s. So, um,. In verse 65 and 107, it does say that one should be appointed over the high priesthood to preside over the priesthood and be called the president of the high priesthood of the church. In other words, um, that suggested that Joseph should actually be officially appointed to that position and sustained to that position. So if you jump to section 75, the heading tells us that when Joseph traveled to Amherst, Ohio, as I mentioned, about an hour by car west of Kirtland uh, he was sustained in that position uh, halfway down in the heading it says the occasion was a conference in Anaheim at which Joseph Smith was sustained and ordained president of the high priesthood etc etc so that event occurred um, not only was he sustained that office but Sidney Rigdon actually ordained him to that position. So he was sustained and ordained as president of the high priesthood at that particular situation. Then, of course, that was in January. In April, when Joseph, as I mentioned, and Sidney and others traveled to Missouri, he was also sustained there as the president of the high priesthood. Um, Now, a presidency, not only a, consists of a president, but also counselors. And the general notion of having individuals serving as standing counselors began with the designation of Isaac Morley and John Coral as counselors to Bishop Edward Partridge in June of 1831. When I say standing, what I'm referring to is having an individual in a position who serves consistently in that position, in this case as a counselor. Joseph frequently gathered brethren together and sort of ad hoc or temporary counsels or counselors as they work together. Section 42 is an example of one of those situations. But those were not standing counselors. Those were just temporary counselors. But in this case, we're talking about standing counselors. And the first ones in the church were Isaac and John, counselors to Edward Partridge, and then also Hiram Smith and Reynolds Cahoon as counselors to Bishop Newell K. Whitney in February 1832. So, uh, the actual notion of counselors being assigned or called to assist presidents occurred in section 107. We're going to jump to verse 79. And the presidency of the council of the high priesthood shall have power to call other high priests, etc. So the presidency of the high priesthood and its counselors shall have power to decide upon testimony according to the laws of the church. So that was again in November, November 11th, 1831. Four months later, in March of 1832, the Lord provided a revelation that has not been published, uh, at least in a standard work, but it is available in the Joseph Smith papers now. And in it the Lord said that unto the office of the presidency of the high priesthood I have given authority to preside with the assistance of his counselors over all the concerns of the church. Now notice, in addition to the notion of counselors to the president in the presidency, there's also the term presidency itself. The term presidency back then and now has two meanings. Initially, it was used to designate the prophet's office, just as it is used in referring to the office of the President of the United States, for example, Washington's presidency or Joe Biden's presidency. But it later also came to refer to a president and her or his counselors, beginning with the creation of the first presidency. However, it would be premature to think that this divine direction to select counselors would complete the evolution of the first presidency. Rather, these counselors were to assist the prophet, who at that point was the only one appointed to preside over the church. Now, around the time of this unpublished revelation, on March 8th, Joseph recorded in his journal that he selected two counselors. Quote, chose this day and ordained Brother Jesse Gause, who? We'll talk about him in a minute, and Brother Sidney Rigdon to be my counselors of the ministry of the presidency of the high priesthood. Then the Lord provided further instruction on March 15th regarding the role of counselors that we now know as section 81 that supports what he had been previously told in this unpublished revelation. So let's look at verse 1 of section 81. It reads, Verily, verily, I say unto my servant Jesse Gause, Listen, wait, what, what, what? Stop. Wait a minute. You're saying my Doctrine and Covenants doesn't say Jesse Gauze. My Doctrine and Covenants says Frederick G. Williams. Well, if you jump to the heading of section 81, it says Frederick G. Williams is called to be a high priest and accounts in the presidency of the high priesthood, a.k.a. the first presidency, eventually. The historical records show that when this revelation is received in March, it called Jesse Gauze to the office of Counselor to Joseph Smith in the presidency. However, when he failed to continue in a manner consistent with this appointment, the call was subsequently transferred to Frederick G. Williams. So let's talk about this for a little bit. Jesse Gause was a school teacher, born in 1784, so he's about 21 years older than than, uh, Joseph. He was born in Pennsylvania, lived in Delaware, Massachusetts, Ohio. He joined the Quakers in 1806, married in 1815. His wife died in 1828, and about that time he changed religions and joined the United Society of Believers in Christ's second appearing, the Shakers. You probably remember the term Shakers from section 49 when you read about Lehman Copley or Copley. The Shakers were an interesting group of individuals distinguished by several characteristics. One, they believed that Jesus had already returned in the form of a, of a woman. Her name was um, Anne Lee. So they thought Anne Lee was the, Jesus Christ uh, personified in second coming form. Interestingly, they also believed that uh, the highest form of life included complete celibacy or abstinence from uh, sexual activity. And the name Shakers or nickname bespeaks the fact that they are one of those groups like a certain branches of the Methodists and, and others who thought that spiritual manifestations include some very, what you might call ecstatic expressions of strange motions, contortions. So these individuals would shake sort of, if you don't mind me saying so, sort of an Elvis Presley way during their worship services and they felt like that was a manifestation of the Spirit. So Jesse Gauze was a shaker. By the way, the shakers also um, lived a communal life. Um, in other words, having all things in common like Acts talks about. Uh, and so this is the society or the religious organization that Jesse Gauze joined. Well, despite the fact that shakers thought that celibacy was a preferred lifestyle, he remarried and married a woman named Minerva Byram in 1830 and they moved to the Shaker community at North Union, Ohio, which is now part of Cleveland. Uh, He was baptized uh, in our church in 1832, early 1832, without his wife, unfortunately, and he served as a scribe for the Bible translation of the Johnson home in the early part of that year. His call to serve as, quote, a counselor unto my servant, Joseph Smith Jr., as a new member of the church, occurred while he was serving as a scribe. So the divine revelation that Joseph received to call him may have something to do with the fact that Jesse had some experience with having, quote, all things common, which could have provided Joseph sort of hands-on, experienced or informed counsel about how to implement the Law of Consecration. Now the original manuscript of Section eighty one is not extant, but was probably written in Jesse's handwriting. The reason we think that is because Frederick G. William, who took Jesse's place, copied the revelation into the current Revelation Book, and then was appointed to replace him in january eighteen thirty three. So we've got Jesse Gauz, March eighteen thirty two, uh, counselor in the presidency. And then, uh, about nine, ten months later, January 1833, Frederick G. Williams taking his place. Now, uh, let's take a look at verses 2 and 3 of section 81. Speaking of the prophet Joseph Smith, um, Jesse was being called... In verse 2, to be a counselor to him. Verse 2, unto whom I have given the keys of the kingdom, which belong always under the presidency of the high priesthood. Therefore, verily I acknowledge him, and will bless him, and also thee, inasmuch as thou art faithful in counsel. In other words, being faithful in as a counselor, in the office which I have appointed to you in prayer, always vocally and in thy heart, in public and private also in thy ministry and proclaiming the gospel in the land of the living among thy brethren. And in doing these things, thou wilt do the greatest good unto thy fellow beings and will promote the glory of him who is your Lord. And then he gives them counsel that we see elsewhere about succoring the weak in verse 5 and lifting up the hands which hang down and strengthening the feeble knees. And then in 6, If thou art faithful, Jesse gods, unto the end thou shalt have the crown of immortality and eternal life in the mansions which I prepared in the house. Of my father. Unfortunately, Jesse didn't qualify for that blessing. As I mentioned, he traveled to Missouri with the prophet in April of 1832. When they returned, he began serving a mission about August first with a man named Zebedee Coltrane. and they were called to go to Pittsburgh and to Thompson, Ohio. Those are east of Kirtland. And also to the Shaker community, where Jesse's wife Lived, So Jesse visited with his wife as he tried to do missionary work in the Shaker community, apparently uh, not being very successful, and obviously not in terms of his wife, because she did not accept an invitation to join him as a member of the church. Uh, Apparently that got to Jesse, because when Zebedee Coltrane fell ill and was forced to return to Kirtland, the same month, that's August 1832, Jesse abandoned his mission and failed to continue as a counselor of the prophet and was eventually excommunicated in December of 1832, thus uh, necessitating, eventually, the calling of Frederick G. Willing to take his place in January 1833. Jesse was not the only counselor who had some difficulties. Sidney Rigdon also experienced personal difficulties about that same time you might recall that when sydney was tarred and feathered his body was dragged across the frozen ground causing probably what you might call a traumatic brain injury which exacerbated some mild depression that he'd already experienced And so those bouts of depression that he experienced afterwards from time to time uh, affected his mental clarity. So following his second trip to Missouri, Sidney's weakened condition got the best of him. And in a meeting, a prayer meeting that was being conducted by Joseph Smith Sr. in July in Kirtland, uh, Fridal Dinwell recorded that Sidney was asked to preach and by the way, Joseph and Emma had returned to Hiram by then. When Sydney was preaching, he said, according to Philo, quote, The keys of the kingdom are rent from the church, nor would they be returned until the saints build him a new house, meaning Sydney a new house. On hearing this, many of his hearers wept, and when someone undertook to dismiss the meeting by prayer, he said praying would do them no good, and the meeting broke up in confusion. Hiram, Hiram Smith was alarmed by what he heard, so he borrowed Philo's horse and carriage and drove all night a 30-mile trip to retrieve Joseph. And when they got back to Kirtland, the prophet held a meeting in a large barn, and almost all the folks in Kirtland came to hear him. Uh, the barn was filled with people, and other folks couldn't get inside, so they stood around the door as far as they could hear. And Joseph arose in their midst and spoke, using Philo's language, In mighty power, saying, I can contend with wicked men and devils, yet with angels. No power can pluck these keys from me except that power that gave them to me. That was Peter, James, and John. For for what Sidney Rigdon has done, the devil shall handle him as one man handles another. Now you might remember that in the June conference of 1831, after brethren were ordained high priests, Joseph and Hiram and other brethren, Lyman White, included spent a good portion of the day and the night casting out the devil from one individual to another. Sydney has a similar experience. Sidney was released as Joseph's counselor, and Philo Dibble in his journal described the subsequent fulfillment of Joseph's prophecy. About three weeks after this, I'm quoting, Sidney was lying on his bed alone. An unseen power lifted him from his bed, threw him across the room, and tossed him from one side of the room to the other. The noise being heard in the adjoining room, his family went in to see what was the matter and found him going from one side of the room to the other, from the effects of which Sidney was laid up for five or six weeks. Now, why did this happen? Well, in consequence of it being released, and that momentary slip-up when he claimed the church was devoid of keys, Joseph explained further reasons for Sidney's behavior in a letter to W.W. Phelps. When Brother Sidney learned the feelings of the brethren in whom he had placed so much confidence, for whom he had endured so much fatigue and suffering, and whom he loved with so much love, his heart was grieved, his spirits failed, and for a moment he became frantic, and the adversary took the advantage. He spake unadvisedly with his lips after receiving a severe chastisement, resigned his commission, and became a private member in the church but has since repented like Peter of old, and after a little suffering by the buffeting of Satan has been restored to his high standing in the church of God. Joseph reordained Sidney as a counselor July 28, thus solving part of the difficulty associated with not having the support of a formerly formerly called counselors. and about five months later, as I mentioned, the Lord revealed in an unpublished revelation that, quote, his servant Frederick, as in Frederick J. Williams, was to be called a counselor and a scribe unto my servant Joseph. Now, Frederick G. Williams was 18 years Joseph Sr., kind of like Jesse Goss, been a doctor as well as a boat operator, a farmer and a school teacher. He was one of the early Kirtland converts, baptized in October of 1830. And he joined those four Lamanite missionaries as they continued on to Missouri, Ziba Peterson, Peter Whitmer Jr., Oliver Cowdery, and Parley P. Pratt. He was serving as one of Joseph's scribes at the time he was called to be the prophet's counselor in 1833. Uh, he also later served as paymaster of Zion's camp, a trustee of the School of the Prophets, a justice of the peace, editor of several newspapers, and an experience and skills as a physician were held in high regard. So, when the Kirtland, Unfortunately, when the Kirtland Safety Society collapsed in 1837, of which he was the president, he was one of the church leaders who allowed themselves to be deceived the turning against the prophet, for which he was excommunicated in March of 1839. His period of separation was relatively short, thankfully, and he was received back into full fellowship a year later in far west Missouri. His deep friendship with Joseph led to the prophet and Emma naming their second surviving son after him, and he suffered the mob persecutions with the rest of the saints in northern Missouri in 1838 and migrated to Missouri to Illinois. Unfortunately, he died four years later in October of 1842 in Quincy of a lung hemorrhage. Now, uh, returning back to the history of the evolution of the First Presidency, on 8th of March, 1833, uh, six months after Joseph and Emma moved back to Kirtland from the Johnson home in Hiram so they could live in the upstairs parlor of the Whitney store, the Lord enhanced and formalized the roles of Sidney Rigdon and Frederick G. Williams held as Joseph's counselors. We're going to jump to 90. Section 90 says to Sidney Rigdon and Frederick G. Williams, verse 1, Thy sins are forgiven thee according to thy petition for thy prayers and the prayers of thy brethren have come up unto my ears. Therefore thou art blessed. Speaking specifically, though, let me just start this again. I'm this going to have to edit this part out. So section 90, Revelation to the prophet Joseph. The Lord speaks directly to Joseph in verse 1 and says, I say unto you, my son, thy sins are forgiven thee. Verse 2, Thou art blessed from henceforth that bear the keys of the kingdom. Verse 3, The keys of this kingdom shall never be taken from you while thou art in the world Interestingly, neither in the world to come. Joseph still holds those priesthood keys. Joseph still directs this dispensation. Nothing happens in this dispensation without the input, direction, and approval of the prophet Joseph Smith where he resides beyond the veil. Then he talks about, in this revelation, uh, the duties and roles of counselors. and In verse 6, and again, barely a saying to thy brethren, Sidney Rigdon and Frederick G. Williams, their sins are forgiven them also, and they are accounted as equal with thee in holding the keys of this last kingdom. Ten days later, following Sidney's request that Joseph proceed with these revelations' directions, Joseph ordained Sidney and Frederick, as his counselors, first and second respectively, and conferred the keys as directed in this revelation in the school, the prophet's room, in the Whitney store. Thus, the process of creating an important component of our church's structure, the quorum of the first presidency, was more or less complete. Um, at the time of their ordination, Sidney and Frederick's ordination, or sitting apart as Joseph's counselors, um, some amazing amazing thing happened. This event occurred in the School of the Prophets room in the Whitney store, the room where the School of the Prophets was held. And um, the history of the church records that in a meeting in that school of high priests on March 18, 1833, Joseph exhorted the brethren to faithfulness and diligence in keeping the commandments of God, I'm quoting from the history, and gave much instruction for the benefit of the saints with a promise that the pure in heart should see a heavenly vision. And after remaining a short time in secret prayer, the promise was verified, for many present had the eyes of their understanding opened by the Spirit of God so as to behold many things. Many of the brethren saw a heavenly vision of the Savior and concourses of angels and many other things of which each one has a record of what he saw. So here's the record of two individuals. Zebedee Coltrane wrote, At one of these meetings after the organization of the school of the prophets, when we were all together, Joseph having given instructions while engaged in silent prayer, kneeling with our hands uplifted, each one praying in silence, no one whispered above his breath, a personage walked through the room from east to west. And Joseph asked if we saw him. I saw him, and suppose others did. And Joseph answered, That is Jesus, the Son of God, our elder brother. Afterward, Joseph told us to resume our former position in prayer, which we did. Another person came through. He was surrounded with as a flame of fire. I experienced a sensation that it might destroy the tabernacle as it was of consuming fire of great brightness. The prophet Joseph said, This was the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I saw him. John Murdoch talked about seeing the Saviour. He said the visions of my mind were open, and the eyes of my understanding were enlightened, and I saw the form of a man most lovely. The visage of his face was sound and fair as the sun. his hair a bright silver-grey curled in most majestic form, his eyes a keen, penetrating blue, the skin of his neck a most beautiful white, and he was covered from the neck to the feet with a loose garment, pure white, whiter than any garment I've ever seen. His countenance was most penetrating and yet most lovely. So interestingly, uh, that is the second time, third time, excuse me, that Joseph Smith was privileged to see the father and the son while in Kirtland. He saw the father and the son on the Morley farm in the Johnson home. You can read that in section 76. Uh, He saw them here, as, as I just read, and he saw them again three or four more times together in the Kirtland Temple. And then he also saw the Savior in the Kirtland Temple three times as well as elsewhere in Kirtland. So it's no surprise, um, President Hingley said, in no place has the Godhead been more manifest than in Kirtland. And it's no surprise, like President Elder Christopherson said, that Joseph Smith was the preeminent revelator of Jesus Christ. Jesus had no greater revelator or friend, witness or friend than Joseph Smith, the prophet. Three days after this event, Frederick received a license stating he had, quote, been ordained to the presidency of the high priesthood, which represents a change in the usage of the term presidency as I described previously. In February 1834, in section 102, the Lord refers to the first presidency again and gives us additional ways of referring to them. Section 102, verse 26 and 27. The Lord said it shall be the duty of said council. He's talking about the high council uh, to transmit copies of proceedings to the high council of the seat of the first presidency of the church. And then in verse 27, it talks about appeals being made to the high council of the seat of the first presidency of the church. So now we have this term that we're used to using. And then um, in verse Three, the prophet is referred to. The prophet and Sydney and Frederick were all referred to as presidents. And again, in verse 33, resolve that the president or presidents of the seat of the first presidency. So we have a fully constituted, fully empowered first presidency. With the with the names of their callings being revealed by the Lord, the same names that we use today. Now, the use of the term First Presidency made it clear that the authority of the First Presidency exceeded that of local Presidents of the Church. At that time, Joseph Smith was not only President of the Church, he was President of the Church in Kirtland. In other words, the first stake President. But there was a Presidency of the Church in Missouri, David Whitmer, W.W. W. Phelps, and John Whitmer. But the fact the term first presidency is used um, indicates that Joseph's authority and the authority of his counselors superseded that of the authority of the presidency of the church, a.k.a., in effect, a stake presidency of the church in Missouri, David Whitmer, W.W. W. Phelps, and John Whitmer. Now, at times, additional counselors or presidents um, were and are appointed to assist the presidency in managing the affairs of the church. The first to be added to the First Presidency was Oliver Cowdery. Now if we jump to the Joseph Smith history, chapter 1, there's only one chapter, of course, chapter 1, verse 72, we can read that at the time that Joseph and Oliver received the Aaronic Priesthood, in verse 72, they were told that Um, John the Baptist acted under the direction of Peter, James, and John who held the keys of the priesthood Melchizedek priesthood which priesthood would in time be conferred on us and that I should be called the first elder of the church and Oliver the second. So if you jump to section 20 known as the Articles of Confederation kind of the first handbook of instruction section 20 verses 2 and 3 refers to Joseph as the first elder of the church and Oliver as the second verse 20 section 21 a revelation of joseph smith on the day the church was organized verses 11 and 12 it refers to joseph being the first elder unto you and therefore oliver is the second elder so when oliver went to missouri he was kind of the leader of the church in missouri for a while and that necessitated Sidney Rigdon being called to assist the prophet. This I'm talking back in October 1830. Uh, when Oliver returned to Kirtland in 1833 in September, when the Missouri persecutions were coming to a head, there was some confusion as to his role in the first presidency and where he fit in the leadership hierarchy. So Joseph clarified this in December 1834, placing him in a position of authority above Sidney as an assistant president, sometimes referred to as an associate president, second only to Joseph. In fact, if Joseph would have died during the time Oliver occupied this position, Oliver would have become president of the church. Brigham Young is one of the sources for that. Interestingly, when Oliver fell away, he jumped to section 124, the Lord called Hiram to take Oliver's place as an assistant president. This is one twenty-four, verse ninety-five, speaking of uh, Hiram Smith. Verse actually ninety-four. From this time forth, I appoint unto him he may be a prophet and a seer and a revelator unto my church, as well as my servant Joseph. He may act in concert also with my servant Joseph. In verse ninety-five, and he shall receive counsel from my servant Joseph, who shall show unto him the keys whereby he may ask and receive and be crowned with the same blessing and glory and honor and priesthood and gifts of the priesthood that once were put upon him that was my servant, Oliver Cowdery. Therefore, if Joseph um, had not been joined by Hiram in the martyrdom, Hiram would would have become president of the church. Now, the following day, at the time that um, Oliver was appointed, assistant president and made that was made public and he was sustained as such uh, Hiram and Joseph Smith senior were ordained as additional counselors in the first presidency so at that point the first presidency consisted of Joseph first Oliver second Sidney third Frederick J. Williams fourth and then Joseph Smith senior and Hiram Smith this is not the only time we've had additional counselors in the first presidency Brigham Young had several extra counselors David O. McKay had a total of five at one point. And when N. Eldon Tanner and Marion G. Romney's health was failing, President Kimball called Gordon B. Hinckley to be an additional counselor in the first presidency. So uh, this entire history and these revelations all combine to bear witness of the divine nature of the organis- organizational structure of the church, in this case particularly First presidency. I bear witness to you that that first presidency is indeed a divine organization. It is of divine origin, and it is divinely led. I just love it when President Nelson bore testimony in April conference how he has come to appreciate the role revelation to the first presidency as he never has before, and bore witness that indeed. The Lord does direct the affairs of this church in that sacred organization known as the First Presidency, now consisting of Russell M. Nelson, Dallin H. Oakes, and Henry B. Eyring. Of that, I bear witness in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.